You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. As the world moves along the path to a zero carbon future, several countries are developing green hydrogen roadmaps to support decarbonisation of their economies by 2030, with many major corporates committing to carbon neutrality by 2030 or 2040. The United States has a hydrogen roadmap. Germany plans to invest 9 billion euros or just over 10.5 billion US dollars, while for France and Portugal the figure is 7 billion euros each. Britain plans to spend 12 billion pounds, Japan $3 billion and China $16 billion to green up their industries. That's according to consultancy Accenture. And on behalf of the German government, uh, the German development bank KFW has initiated a program locally of up to uh, 200 million euro in size to support the establishment of green hydrogen projects here in South Africa. And it intends releasing uh, the formal RFI uh, by the end of the month. In fact, uh, I think it already has. Now, the funding, which is in the form of concessional loan finance, must be disbursed by December 2023. And KFW has appointed the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research and Meridian Economics to help it identify and evaluate high potential projects for implementation during the course of this year. So it isn't a long lead time and we know synthetic fuels and chemicals company Sassel has said recently that it's in a position to be able to produce green hydrogen within the next 24 months. And we know oil giants are also facing heightened pressure from governments and investors to reduce emissions and embrace renewable energy. BlackRock, uh, one of Exxon's uh, largest investors, signed a pledge supporting net zero carbon emissions by 2050 or sooner. And that pressure from investors and governments has real consequences, as we saw this month. Uh, now change-resistant companies like Exxon might be forced to change. And we're looking at green hydrogen as one of the key aspects to achieving decarbonisation and meeting our Paris Agreement targets. Now, it requires cheap renewables. South Africa has an abundance of wind and solar resources, and it makes green hydrogen a very attractive option to transform South Africa's economy. But, and it's a, sin a significant but, there are some technological, legal and regulatory permitting challenges uh, to practically implementing projects on the ground. So to unpack these uh, and to look beyond the green hydrogen hype, we've invited Stuart Heather Clark, uh, the power sector lead for SLR Africa, Mark Van Antwerp, uh, Vice President of Generation Sales at Siemens Energy, and uh, he's also helping uh, Siemens Energy Africa energize society, and uh, Jill Niven, who's a partner within the projects team at Weber Wenzel, who specializes in environmental law within the energy mining, oil and gas industrial sectors, just to talk about some of the challenges in getting green hydrogen projects off the ground. So, uh, Mark, perhaps you can kick us off here, because we can see that to produce green hydrogen, we need various components from the generation using wind and solar, storage and transmission, obviously, of the green electricity, water supply, wastewater treatment, onto the actual production and storage of hydrogen, and then transporting hydrogen in its various forms to the end user. So within that, surely there are no significant challenges with the generation components. We've been building wind and PV plants for some time now. You're dead right. Uh, I think we're getting it very right in South Africa already with PV and wind sources. Um, and considering that your biggest input costs in the uh, production of hydrogen is renewable sources, I think we're standing in a good place. What we need to consider here is the load factors. Uh, most uh, wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun doesn't shine all the time, so we need to ensure that we can get our, our load factors, in other words, the production time up as much as possible. And the reason why I mention this is because for electrolyzers to be economically viable, 
we need to operate them in at least 4,000 hours per year. I think looking forward in the renewable sources, I think things like storage will come into the market uh, at reasonable prices very shortly. And then I think a hybrid type application could really push up the number of hours renewable sources could be used uh, for the input of, of hydrogen mm. costs. Mark, just staying with you for a second, lo longer there, when you say a hybrid type uh, solution, would that be renewables in, in conjunction with battery energy storage technology or renewable and potential fossil here? Just to get clarity around what you mean by hy hybrid. Yeah, hybrid could be a number of things. It could be, uh, uh, especially for hydrogen, which you are looking at renewable sources, could be wind, uh, photovoltaic, maybe concentrated solar power and most certainly things like batteries. So we're not talking about uh, going back into fossils here, because then it wouldn't be green. Then we're going back to uh, your kind of grey and, and even blue hydrogen. Uh, Stuart, surely uh, the, the permitting of the generation component of green energy is something that we are used to now with the, the various components of the reprogram. You've been involved since uh, bid window one. Uh, what do you see as any uh, particular challenges around the generation side? Indeed, uh, we have obviously been doing environmental and social impact assessments and permitting of generation PV and wind in South Africa now for a number of years. However, what's very different in, in the green hydrogen space is the, the size of the generation that, that people are speaking about. So if you look at the typical um, REAP projects, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Plan, uh, you have seen wind farms of maybe up to 140 megawatts, You've seen solar PV, maybe 20 to 60 megawatts. Um, from the interaction that I've had with developers and what I've read in the, in, in the news is essentially uh, green hydrogen developers are talking in gigawatts. So the scale is significant big, significantly bigger in terms of the generation. So maybe two, three, four gigawatts of, of generation capacity. If you look at the REAP, uh, sorry, the Integrated Resource Plan 2019, we're looking at 17, mega, uh, 17 gigawatts of wind by 2030, and then potentially another 8 gigawatts of solar PV. So 25 gigawatts of renewables in terms of the integrated resource plan. Potentially at the scale of these, renew of these green hydrogen projects, you add four, five, or six green hydrogen projects onto that, you may be doubling the renewable energy generation capacity that's required. So obviously this leads to all kinds of other challenges around access to space, uh, potentially um, developers following green hydrogen projects in competition for with uh, developers that are looking at bidding to the REAP rounds and um, issues around spatial issues around uh, solar PV plants that take up uh, land take uh, may not be acceptable anymore in terms of sterilizing agricultural land and then the typical bird and bat issues that, that come with wind farm developments. Mm -hmm. So just a challenge in terms of the scale of these projects are significantly bigger than what we've seen in terms of the standard REAP projects. Mm -hmm. and, and you touched on a very important issue there, and I think this tension that we're going to see play out between renewables for feeding into the grid to alleviate our energy crisis immediately, or renewables going into the production of green hydrogen as well, to see how that plays out. Jill, from a, um, a legal perspective, it does appear, though, that in terms of the generation component of green hydrogen, it's relatively simple. What are the legal aspects to consider here? Yeah, I think from a permitting perspective and, and from the legal kind of considerations, uh, renewable energy facilities are not new. Um, and our regulators and government know how to deal with these type of facilities. Um, I think as as Stuart alluded to, what's going to be interesting is to see how they deal with the size and the magnitude. Um, 
and kind of wheeling and feeding into the grid or is it standalone? So, so those are the type of considerations that will play out in the actual permitting con um, mm. uh, consideration project developers um, and, and they translate into conditions that we haven't seen um, for a very long time, since potentially round one, um, where you are having project developers having to have quite onerous conditions because of the magnitude. And that, that'll be interesting to see as these projects move from idea phase uh, through the, the feasibility curve. Mark, moving to getting the green electrons to the electrolyzer transmission here, what are the technical challenges that one might encounter? Um, Michael, I think, look, on-grid and off-grid applications are, are both possible. I mean, the grid is there, but I think from a cost perspective, probably the more embedded type uh, application with no wheeling charges to the grid would probably be the most uh, cost-effective. I think uh, the bigger challenge will be the tracking of the, the green electrons, and I think uh, Jill and Stuart will certainly cover those two topics. Mm. When, when we talked to um, experts here about, and uh, Jill, I'm going to bring you in on this point, and you touched on wheeling. I mean, let's say this isn't an embedded project and you are looking to wheel across the grid. Would the, the existing renewable energy certificates suffice here in, in the way we've been doing things? Yeah, so I think the industry is very familiar with, um, with the REC or Renewable Energy uh, Certificate. Um, and essentially that is accounting for, for the green electron. Um, and that's not, that's not necessarily complicated or new. Um, it's kind of the magnitude um, and whether South Africa is ready for that. Um, having said that, I think we, in, we still have some time ahead of us looking at other jurisdictions and how they are uh, relying on the RECs. What will also be interesting is not only the green electricity um, that is actually utilized for the production of that green hydrogen, but when the hydrogen is used in a, in a power generation um, capacity, is there then a, a, another wreck associated with that? So I think there are additional considerations that we need to look at and that the regulators need to look at because um, these incentivize the type of projects. Um, and incentivize this green hydrogen economy that everyone is is really eager to see get off. Mm, um, mm. And, and to my introductory comments, Stuart, to bring you in, we've got the CEO of Sassel, Fleetwood Krobler, saying Sassel's ready to go. They they can have it ready within 24 months. Here, in the in the transmission side, what do you see as some of the potential challenges of, of tracking those? those green electrons uh, uh, over the grid? Look, from, from an electrons perspective or transmission perspective, from the environmental permitting side, we don't mind the, what the color of the electrons are. It's really the type of infrastructure that's needed. And what again, what we've seen with the cluster projects in the REAP, uh, REAP round five projects, where you have four or five different generation plants in close proximity to each other, each one has its own individual transmission line. And that, that presents potential cumulative impacts from an environmental perspective. We also seen that, that some of the green hydrogen projects have multiple generations. So they might have wind, they might have solar PV with battery energy storage. And again, potentially a number of, of transmission lines. So again, that presents some challenges from a cumulative impact assessment perspective. Mm. Obviously the ownership of, of the transmission line is important. Uh, and as with the REAP, a uh, separate uh, permit is required for the transmission line if that's going to be owned and, uh, owned and operated by ESCOM. So it will depend on the ownership. If, if there are different ownership issues there associated with the transmission lines, 
it does make the environmental permitting a little bit more complex mm. in terms of applying separate environmental authorizations for that, that specific infrastructure. There is a lot of attention and focus on the potential of green hydrogen, not here in South Africa only, but all around the world as uh, we look to decarbonize uh, the global energy system before 2050. Uh, one of the big challenges, Mark, uh, and surely must be how the industry is going to address some of the water supply issues for hydrogen fuel generation in a country already struggling so much with uh, water security. We know that diesel is expensive, but that's being touted. Uh, what are the costs and impacts here of brine disposal, for example? How do you see some of the water challenges from a technical perspective? Yeah, Michael, you're dead right. Uh, water scarcity is a big, big challenge for South Africa. So, I mean, we really need to put these plants near a sustainable water source. Uh, sometimes probably what makes the most sense is probably close to the ocean because it also is close to a port, which is also helps with the transportation issues. Um, just to put it into perspective, I mean, uh, around 9.1 liters of demineralized water is required to produce uh, a kilogram of hydrogen, or maybe in another form, the overall usage of water is about there's 20 tons of untreated water for every ton of hydrogen produced. So these are really significant numbers and most certainly must be planned for. Uh, and Stuart, uh, so water must be one of the, the most important issues, a potentially difficult obstacles here, uh, to Mark's point, considering our water restrictions. What are the options here inland versus at the coast because it does seem to make a lot more sense to be going coastal uh, from a transport and from a diesel perspective well, how do you see the two options stacking up against each other michael from the projects we've seen there there are two different projects as you've mentioned inland so potentially those developers that are going for markets that are located within south africa so they obviously want to generate uh, green hydrogen close to those markets and then potentially those projects that are based on the coastline that are looking more at the export market. Um, in, in environmental permit, there's always two aspects of water that we look at. It's the water supply. So we need to understand the infrastructure, the piping, the abstraction, the damming of water that might be required to feed the electrolyzer. And then there's the wastewater treatment. So clearly you need demineralized water to go into the electrolyzer. And as Mark has suggested, the volumes of wastewater ultimately could be significant. Now on the inland projects, probably water a little bit more challenging and, and highly unlikely that developers will be going for surface water, potentially groundwater, but more likely to, to go in for grey water or industrial efferents or mm. contaminated water from mining projects. So there, a water use license will be required in terms of both uh, abstraction of the water, but also potentially the management of the wastes that, that result. Mm. For the marine-based projects, or the, sorry, the coastal projects, desalination, as you've mentioned, is, is probably a better option. There again, the placement of a desalination plant, it makes the ERA or the permitting a little bit more complex requirement for marine ecologists, look at dispersion modeling of, of brine and bringing that into, into the environmental impact assessment. Additional regulations then kick in in terms of the Coastal Zone Management Act and the requirement for coastal, coastal water discharge permit in terms of discharging the, the brine back into the marine environment. So with every step, every time you add a component onto this project, 
the permitting becomes more complex. Yeah, and interesting to hear you say that there is a potential opportunity in using um, AMD water here. We, we see this AM acid mine drainage problem around Johannesburg uh, as a challenge, but potentially an opportunity here for inland uh, developers of these projects to use. Jill, to, just to bring you in on the legal side, chatting to AFRIMAT CEO Andres van Heerden a couple of weeks ago, he actually applauded the Department uh, of Mineral Resources and Energy for moving quite swiftly under uh, the current minister. He said his big concerns were around getting water use licenses. Now, uh, when we talk about a water use license for, for a project here in green hydrogen, that needs to get off the ground quite quickly. That must be one of the key impediments, surely, uh, getting a speedy water use license. Look, I, I don't think that there's, um, we will beat around the bushes with regards to the water use licenses and the backlog that we've had, particularly from the mining and, and heavy um, industrial players. Um, we have now passed seen water use licenses pending for three to five years um, not being issued. I think the department, particularly under um, Minister Creasy, has taken quite a proactive um, response trying to streamline the decision making on, on the permits um, and has committed that they'll do a 90 kind of 90 day turnaround time, um, which is still to be seen. Um, but yes, the water use licenses are challenging. Um, they require quite a lot of technical input, uh, engineering designs. So the technical threshold has been increased. Mm. Um, a lot of the pre-work that needs to be done for these licenses has also increased. So a lot on the project developers. Um, I think though, speaking to the opportunity, as you said, um, you know, if we tag on circular economy, ESG opportunities, and um, the of wastewater treatment uh, and the wastewater treatment facilities really plays into this. And so if you're starting to look at green hydrogen from a package perspective, then let's see how we have the renewable energy feeding it. So you have your green hydrogen, you have renewable energy feeding your wastewater treatment facilities, um, and then you also have this ESG water treatment um, plant. And yeah. um, you know, I think, you know, project developers need to look at that as well. Where do you put the brine? Um, we can't discharge, potentially we would not be able to just discharge that amount um, back into the oceans. So I think there are a few things that need to be looked at in more detail. Um, but there are absolutely uh, opportunities. And, and I don't think that these challenges associated with the permitting are new. Uh, could you imagine that? I mean, it's a lovely future that you paint there, using renewable energy to, uh, to create green hydrogen by retreating AMD water, which is a legacy mining issue around Johannesburg. And it just seems to tick all of those ESG boxes. Uh, when it, and I want to come back to you on this point, Jill, when it comes to the actual electrolysis to create the hydrogen feedstock and storage, how is hydrogen actually catered for here? Is it a liquid? Is it a mineral? Is it a gas? What is it? This is a quite an interesting point of how it falls into our regulations at the moment. So there is no clear cut. We don't have an overall project specific legislation for green hydrogen. And um, so it doesn't fall into kind of a very neat little box. Um, we know we have the NEMA EIA regulations. We have the Water Use Light, uh, Water Act, the National Water Act. Um, but depending on the application of the hydrogen. So is it going to be ammonia? And then is it a high, um, is it in a liquefied uh, format or in a, a high pressure gas format? And by virtue of that application, the, it may uh, fall into another kind of suite of regulations um, that are unforeseen. So, you know, you're opening up 
things like the Gas Act and the Petroleum Products Act, if you're looking at e-fuels and if this is for mobility. Um, if you have fueling stations, is this now a substitute to diesel if it's in a liquefied format? So um, these are some of kind of the challenges that government needs to consider when developing the roadmap. Um, we understand that policy objectives will be promulgated in the National Hydrogen Strategy, um, which we're waiting for. Um, but, you know, it's unclear whether all of the departments have been engaged constructively in these type of discussions. So have you looked at all of the suites of legislation yeah. Um, yeah. and what triggered? Absolutely. And Stuart, to bounce that back to you, I mean, as a project developer, you need to be very mindful very early on here, it seems, from the various uh, components from generation to transport to uh, electrolysis, of what the end use is for, for the green hydrogen. Absolutely, Michael. And, and obviously the electrolysis component of a green hydrogen project is, is differs substantially to your standard renewable energy project. And I think Jill has already mentioned that uh, hydrogen is explosive. You've got to store it under pressure. And that, that, that pushes a whole lot of additional requirements again into the environmental permitting. There'll be need for some form of quantitative risk assessment to understand the positioning of those high pressure vessels in terms of the safety regulations, in terms of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Again, in terms of the outputs of those quantitative risk assessments, uh, understanding whether that facility then needs to be registered as a major hazardous installation is, is also important. Jill mentioned then uh, realizing the challenges of, of transporting hydrogen on its own. Um, do you convert it into another fuel, for example, um, ammonia? Uh, if this is the case, again, ammonia kicks in another bit of legislation uh, in the need for an air emissions license. So again, as you can see, as the project evolves and as the various components are added on, the permitting ch challenges increase. Um, not individual challenges in their own right, but really challenges as you're combining them all together into a single project, mm. realizing that you're going to need to run an integrated permitting process, realizing that developers really need to spend time planning their projects and understanding the permitting plan before they just jump straight into uh, asking consultants to start an EIA. Absolutely, and have this integrated approach so uh, you don't have uh, delays and bottlenecks holding things up. Mark, from a transport perspective, and I want to remain on this for a little while, this seems to be another big challenge, along with, uh, with water in my eyes. Uh, doing some reading up for this panel, hydrogen has to be chilled at minus 253 degrees Celsius. So that's only 20 degrees above absolute zero. There are a couple of global freight companies that are working on shipping solutions, but this is uncharted territory here. H how do you see the transport challenge being overcome? Yeah, Michael, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, in its pure form, hydrogen is quite challenging and inefficient to, to transport. Um, so it's, unless you're going to re-electrify using hydrogen in its pure form, it's probably best to transfer it into some other form of fuel, like e-fuel, like e-methanol, uh, e-ammonia, or something like that. So probably best to start with the end in mind, who's the off-taker, and what do they need to use that fuel for, and then transform it into that, into that uh, e-fuel. And then, uh, Jill, uh, legislation doesn't recognize green hydrogen as a standalone product. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, so it's going to fall under different definitions or some broader remit here. How, how do you see this playing out? Do, do you see government needing to come out and be proactive here and to have almost a suite of uh, um, harm, harmonizing legislation, bringing hydrogen into the various existing uh, acts and laws that we have? Yes, yeah, so I, I don't 
think that a project-specific um, suite of regulation or act um, will, is, is helpful. Um, you get caught up in other things, and then we end up having other innovative energy solutions in five and mm. 20 different acts that apply to those. Mm. So I think there's an element of, of government being proactive, looking at the legal framework and understanding how to facilitate hydrogen within that, and potentially tweaking a few of the definitions. Um, and, and I say this in, in a way that sounds very easy, but we know how protracted uh, any kind of amendment to legislation is. Um, we understand policy objectives are coming into the strategy, but how does that actually affect the acts that, that green hydrogen will be subjected to? So we don't want to see these kind of innovative projects which really drive carbon neutrality objectives um, and kind of ambitions around the Paris Agreement um, we want to see them being hamstrung. Um, there is an, an element of having really proactive and constructive stakeholder engagement, which involves government, the entities, um, and a lot of kind of collaboration. Yeah, and hopefully government chatting to project developers like yourselves. Uh, Stuart, there are a lot of challenges, and we've kind of stacked them up as this uh, almost uh, insurmountable tower or hurdle to overcome. But we do need to reach uh, uh, net carbon zero by 2050. Is this really um, necessary? Is it efficient for South Africa to pursue green hydrogen at this stage, considering what we've just discussed? Or must we just um, you know, roll with it and say, well, that is the, the, the environment in which we operate? Well, Michael, I mean, you've only got to look at international trends and see what's happening. I think you mentioned it in your introduction in terms of the numbers of countries now that are adopting green hydrogen policies that are investing money into technology. So surely the demand from a global perspective is there. For a country like South Africa that is that has really well endowed renewable energy resources that are at a, a good price, uh, has access to water um, and has access to trade routes around the world, I think it puts us in an in incredible position. So whilst the, the permitting for these individual components of, of a green hydrogen project are a challenge, I'm seeing for the first time in my career that I'm using a bit of my port experience, a bit of my oil and gas experience, a bit of my renewable energy experience to advise developers that are looking at, at these types of projects. And really the, the key message there is, is just to develop the project, to look at the project as a whole, understand it, don't rush into the permitting, unpack it, understanding the, understand the permitting plan and plan carefully before you jump into to starting these projects. But absolutely, a lot of a lot of positive sentiments out there. Yeah. Exciting times in my career, for sure, to see uh, the potential for decarbonisation at, at a global level. And to my earlier points around Sassel, we don't want another repeat of late Charles. Uh, here in South Africa, we hope that it is taking all of that on board as well. Uh, Stuart Heather-Clark, thank you very much. Power Sector Lead for SLR Africa, joined around the table by Mark Van Antwerp, Vice President of uh, Generation Sales at Siemens Energy, and uh, Jill Niven, who is a partner within the projects team at Weber Wenzel, specialising in environmental law within mining, oil and gas and in industrial sectors, talking about the green hydrogen economy, lots of potential, also lots of permits awaiting project developers.